0: This morning I'd like to reflect a little upon view, our view, <clears throat> and where in practice when something is realized, what that means is there's a shift in the view, our view of the way things are, our view of who I am, what the world is, what practices shifts over time. In one formulation in the teachings of the four great attachments, the Buddha outlines four great attachments. Two of them have to do with views. The attachment to our views and opinions. Ever had any of those? Right, And the attachment to the view of the separate sense of self. Right, They're two of the great attachments. And just for clarity, I'm sure you all you know this, but the Buddha is not saying we don't have views. He's actually saying there's some skillful views that will lead toward the end of suffering. And there are views that actually entangle us further. And view is very interesting. You know its place in the eightfold path. Right? right view is right there at the beginning. Our view, so you can think of it, it's not necessarily even just an intellectual view. It's the place we're viewing from. Right? Here's, this is my angle of viewing. Right? What I call me is where I view from. I view the world, I view myself, I view view my inner life, my outer life. And dependent upon my view is my thought, right? So following view is thought or intention in the path. And following my thought about the way things are is my effort, right? From view to intention to effort in the path. And so we can find ourselves making all kinds of effort in practice. And we learn about wise effort and making it a little um, a clearer effort if we're getting too loose and a little looser effort if we're getting too tight. And another thing we need to do is to question the view. What is the view from which that effort comes from? From which that effort comes what is the view from which your practice comes? What is the view that you bring into the hall that will condition the way you attend to this moment? And because our view is so close, closer even than our thought, it's like, it's so close to us, how we view that we rarely question it. As Virginia Sarty says, we see things not as they are, but as we are. The practice is to see things as they are. So we think, okay, I'm going to see things as they are. Right, this is how you see things as they are. You make this kind of effort and do this kind of practice. But we may not have backed up enough to actually recognize what's the view we're looking from. She says we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. We have these lenses, lenses of perception. And we might have a view, you've probably seen this somewhere along the line, we may have the view that actually I'm probably the most deficient meditator here on this November retreat don't even know why i booked up for a month or two weeks because i know myself as someone deficient right from we may not even articulate to that to ourselves but from that view we open our eyes and we see everybody else here every 35 other people looking pure radiant still calm collected Or whatever it is we attribute to someone who's not deficient. And our view is confirmed. We can have another view, but actually, secretly, I think I'm the best meditator here. The most awake, the most enlightened. And from that view, opening our eyes, looking out and everyone seems a little drab and depressed and, you know, yeah, it's true. So just to look a little bit this morning at the view and can we um, begin to both question the views that we may have about our practice and about ourselves that may be hindering us actually that may be hindering us from realising what we haven't yet realised. Because in practice, if we want something different to happen, if we genuinely sense that potentiality of waking up on many, many different levels then actually, if we're bringing to that the view of what that should look like, we're already in the way. Even if we've had moments of genuine waking up on any level, if we're bringing that one into the present and trying to recreate that, trying to go through exactly the same doorway with that kind of effort, we may be missing something. For something new to happen, actually. We always, every time you've ever had an insight or realisation, it's arisen because we've let go of assuming we know what should happen, what it should look like, my view of what should happen. (coughs) That we're not carrying into the present the old view, actually. So just as an example, very mundane, this isn't esoteric, and yet it's very hard to examine sometimes. The other day I was leading a group in my local town called Ashburton in the town hall, and we'd arranged to have a meal together after the Sunday morning group. I'd arranged for us to have a meal together. And I'd arranged for a cook to come and arranged for pots to be there and... And I'd arranged with the town hall that the tables, normally we don't use the tables, but the, table, the room with the tables would be open, which was the little guild hall opposite. And I, the caretaker last week showed me where the tables were, opened the doors, there are the tables, you can bring them in. And I arrived in the morning, doors locked. My room was open, but the room where the tables were was locked. I rang the caretaker. He didn't respond. The view started to form. Well, the caretaker's neglected his duties. Neglected his duties. right? Maybe I'm going to have to pick this up with the town hall and blah, 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 blah. right? Because we need tables to eat our meal from. And I'd arranged it. And I knew where the tables were. They're inside that room, but the door was locked. So all morning I was wondering if he would show up from my message to open the door because I believed and I knew, I was convinced that what I needed and wanted was through that door because I'd seen it there before. And he didn't ring me back, and we did something different. We had our meal on the floor in the town hall. But when he did get back to me later and he said, yes, yes, the tables are there, the door... Yeah, that door's locked, but the other door in the kitchen isn't locked. And the other door in the kitchen, I'd walked past another hundred times that morning. I'd propped the broom up against it. I'd even registered door, door to the guild hall, had even arisen in my mind. But because I was so convinced that the way to what I wanted was through the blue-painted door, my perception, my view wasn't open enough to go through another door, right? The perception was so fixed, the view was so fixed that what I need and want is through that door. And actually the door was open all the time, the one in the kitchen, it was very visible, it was the room we were in, and I'd missed it, completely missed it. And so all the views that were built on that, the caretaker neglecting his duties, it's completely mind-made. That what I need and want is only through that door. It's not true. And how much do you bring that view to practice, especially when you've got a history of practice, where each of you will have had moments of waking up at different levels where we start to get convinced that what I need and want is through that door. If I just push a little bit harder, if I just be with this a little bit longer, if I just really push myself, or if I really, really don't do anything, that's when my insights come. And would we be willing to have the light of attention shine as much on the view as we get so fixated with the phenomenon themselves. We think they're what's in the way, don't you? (laughs) Don't we? Especially the difficult phenomena. We think they're in the way of the view, that the view will be unobscured when they are out of the way. And not so often do we turn the light of attention back to ourselves and see what is the view which conditions the way I am attending to this moment. And is there something about the way I'm viewing this experience that is conditioning how it is showing up, that is conditioning my cycling around it again and again and again? What is the view I might be holding that I don't even yet here, articulated in my mind. These views, the views that are hindering us, the Buddha does also talk about skillful views that will help us toward the end of suffering. But in terms of the views that are unconscious, that are hindering our path, how can we get to see them when they're closer to us even than our breath, often? We can get to see them by keeping hanging out with ourselves. Sometimes we can get to see them when someone else helps shed light on them. Sometimes we see them when things just break apart our view of who I am and what the world is breaks apart. Some event happens. Something shifts in the inner life, in the outer life, and suddenly the view is altered. Sometimes the views just break open and we start to see in a new way. And it, it can be very small things sometimes. One woman on Sunday, she remarked that, oh, I'm noticing now that my view through my eyes, my visual perception is actually shifted in view. Meaning, and she said, actually I'm noticing all the objects in this room start to stand out more clearly. There's a bottle just being a bottle. There's a person just being a person. As we relax and settle back, Because Dharma teaching is not a kind of reaching for something to happen. It's a settling back. A settling back. And as we settle back, all the erroneous views, the views that have kept us in a very fixed way of perceiving, can start to be seen and recognized, and then we see that they're empty. They're not the whole truth. Another woman remarked, she said, as she explored and what was going on, she said, Oh, I notice that there's a view here that my inner life is real, but the outer world isn't really real. Right? She said, and I've been operating from that view. And as she saw that, she realized, oh, and sometimes I operate from the other, the other way around, the flip side, that the outer world is real and my inner life isn't real. And each of those views, she saw the pain in each one, how that leads to a certain kind of way of attending to things where either she abandons herself by believing everything out there is real but this isn't, or by becoming very, very intensified that everything in here is real and everything out there is not. As she got to see it, then there's the space, then there's the knowing, that capacity to see things as they are. And in this case, that meant that she said, Oh, that's a view. Where did that come from? It's not the whole truth. As we start to investigate where that comes from, we'll start to see where the Buddha was pointing to one of the most pernicious views of the location and what he called the conceit of I am. The conceit of I am. Which doesn't mean to say that He's saying, you're not, but where I am is the center of the universe, which is how it feels, right? Because when we have experience, we're affected by things, we feel the affect here, that I am, and that view conditioning the intention and then the effort of my practice. I am, therefore, I have to get busy with my practice to make everything better. In Dharma teachings, what is being pointed to is a a paradigm shift in that view of the location of I am. And it's as radical, if not more radical, than in history where we've seen where views were held, something challenges that, and then there's a big opposition to that challenge. The classic example (coughs) of Galileo, right, which is, in a way, an outer version of the same thing. We are at the center. The earth is at the center, was the previous view. And we're kind of identified with that, it's our home. We're at the center. And his view, complete shift, which doesn't come from um, staying in that old view. For a new view to arise, we have to be willing for the unknown. The view shifted. No, no, we're not at the center. The sun is at the center. And did that go down well? Really not. With the authorities that were invested in the view that we are at the center. Because when I'm at the center, it means that I can derive my meaning from there, my purpose from there, a whole church from there. And he was put under house arrest, asked to recant. Your view is dangerous to us. We're not so, um, we don't so easily want to let go of our views actually, even if we're told that they may be conditioning suffering. Because at least there's some security there. There's something familiar there. So what views may you be bringing to your seat, to your walking? What views do you bring when you meet difficult content arising in the heart-mind or in the body? With regard to the body, what views are there? From the position of I am, we usually fall into two extremes with the body. Either the body is real, It is who I am, and we spend our life trying to make it more pleasant, which is a, I don't know, it doesn't take long, does it, into your life when you realize actually that's a bit of a hopeless task in the end, at least as different bits start to not work so well. And And we feel the inevitable aging and movement in that direction but we can have the view that the body is real and we try our best to kind of prop it up and keep it going, which is different than taking care of it. It's very different than being respectful and taking care. So the view that it is real or the view that it is not real, that we deny it, that we ignore it, that we come up into our head and either deny its needs or have a kind of a spiritual transcendent view that actually because it's just material form arising and passing, then I don't have to give full attention there. This is what happens. This is a nice little story of uh, this wrong view. Both of these are considered wrong view. Wrong view about the body. And this is from Mullah Nasruddin the Sufi wise man who acted like a fool in order to wake us up. Nasruddin had brought a donkey, but it was costing him a lot to keep it fed, so he hatched a plan. As the weeks went on, he gradually fed the donkey less and less. Finally, he was only feeding it one small cupful of grain throughout the day. The plan seemed to be succeeding, and Nasruddin was saving a lot of money. Then, unfortunately, the donkey died. Nasruddin went to see his friends in the tea shop and told them about his experiment. It's such a shame. If that donkey had been around a little longer, maybe I could have gotten him used to eating nothing. If that donkey had only been around a little longer, maybe I could have got him used to eating nothing. The wrong view, the wrong view, any ways that we're denying this existence or even using spiritual teachings to reinforce the non reality. Because we may have seen very genuinely for ourselves that the body is not what we originally thought it was. When we go deeper, when we get a little quiet, when we perceive it very intimately, It's not what the mirror tells us. It is an extraordinary, uh, at one glance, one view, an extraordinary um, arising and passing of sensation that is not me or mine, that if I cling to it, I suffer, that is changing constantly in flux. And if we look deeper, and deeper and deeper still into material form, we see what is revealed is more and more space. Just as science shows us now from the view that's moving, move, being moved towards, you investigate something further and further, and there's more and more and more space. Or the view that the body is real. And then we spend all day looking in the mirror lamenting at the aging. If we had taken our identity as being someone much younger. With that kind of body. With that kind of health. with regard to the content that arises, what's the view? And each of us may have different views here, let's say with difficult content. Some of us, there may be the view, unspoken, that actually this life should actually be pleasant and flattering to me, if I was doing it right, then my experience would be nice. And when you hear it expressed like that, you may say, yeah, that's very gross. But again, when you're right in the heat of the moment, when something difficult is arising in the heart-mind, is there a view, actually, this shouldn't be happening to me, Or that because it's happening, it's evidence that I'm doing something wrong. It's a wrong view. There's no contract we signed that actually this life should be flattering and pleasant to me. There's no deal that actually if I was doing it right, it wouldn't be difficult. Sometimes we're really, really doing it. We're really here, and it gives room for the difficult to show up. But what conclusion are you bringing? Others of us have the view oh, something difficult is arising. That's good. That means I'm getting somewhere. Right? There's no gain without pain. It's another view. It's another view. Or something difficult is arising, therefore I'm purifying my karma. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. In fact, the Buddha was very um, uh, pointed to a Jain monk who was doing austerity practice. And the Buddha asked again and again, What are you doing? And basically, the gist of it is I'm purifying. There's more pain arising and I'm purifying till I reach the end of the purification. And the Buddha says, well, how far have you got? And he said, I don't know. And how much longer have you got? I don't know. And the Buddha was very pointed in him saying, not necessarily. Not necessarily. So if we're taking what is arising as evidence of how it's going, it may limit our way of really openly attending to what's here. What's your view about awakening? Because we'll each carry them. either based on experiences we've had where we have been really open and the view really has shifted and changed and something really stands out to us in a new way, or based on what we've read, or based on what we hope for, or based on idealized images of what that would look like, like... I think a lot of us might come with no more difficult stuff. Thank you. That's what I'm working here for. Because surely awakening has to be the end of difficult stuff. Because otherwise why would you bother? Right? But then if we hold that view, every time difficult stuff arises, I'm not awake, right? Then time arises. How much longer... The view of time arises, self arises in time, and then, okay, I'm in for the long haul. And there is a wisdom to both the view of long haul and there's a wisdom to letting go of the view of the long haul. Because we then miss what is right here under our very nose. Or we have a view of awakening that it would mean, and I'd love to hear from all of you, what would it mean? You know, what would it look like? What is the ideal? Or the beacon from a past experience that we're carrying of, oh, that needs to happen again. And can we see that these may actually be stopping us from being fresh with what is right here and now? One of my teachers used to say, you know, sometimes many, many people have had moments or experiences where they really have seen through the veils that occlude us and leave us feeling separate. Moments where we've really seen through that. And he would sometimes say, Better you'd never had that experience at all. Why? Because you're carrying it in with you. And everything else is being compared to that, and you're missing what's under your nose. So, views also can be very, uh, be views that lead to the end of suffering. And the Buddha pointed out three wrong views and three right views. And we need to see where the, where the wrong view is operating. To really let that be seen so that we can then see that it's not the whole story, it's a view. right? One of them is to perceive that which is impermanent as permanent. perceive that which is impermanent as permanent all of you in your intellect will be able to know that that is a wrong view none of you here would try to posit the view yes actually there is permanence this mind state is permanent even though it feels like that sometimes all of you have been around the block long enough to know probably that that you would agree with that And yet, in the moment of being right here with my step as it touches the earth, my heart as it feels this, or the spaciousness or calm that I'm contacting, does the view arise? This is it. This is here to stay. How many of you have had a difficult mind state arise on this retreat and think, that's it now? The fear arises, oh my goodness, it's going to be like this for the next two weeks. I'm going to feel hopeless and helpless for the next two weeks. So the right view is to really attend with the lens. It's a different kind of lens to the perception of impermanence. Is If we stay steady with the phenomena, we see their nature. And not just in the intellect but through that feeling in, through that steady perception of tasting, of feeling the texture of what is here. Because where the realization happens, in, on the level of the chitta, the level of the heart-mind, it takes time sometimes. Intellect may say, yeah, impermanence. I've heard a hundred Dharma talks about impermanence thank you, I get it, right? But do you really get it? Because when that view is really turned around, something different can happen. Something new can show up. In the story in the time of the Buddha, when again, you probably all know the story of Kisa Gotami, the woman who had lost her child. And she came to the Buddha in, in grief, stricken, Stricken, like there's not m- too many more terrible things than to lose a child. And she said, can you fix it, to the Buddha? The child had already died, can you fix it? And he didn't say, look, things are impermanent. Firstly, that would not have been terribly appropriate or kind, the view itself isn't what necessarily makes the difference in terms of the knowing the intellectual knowledge. He he said, go to a house and find me a mustard seed from a home where nobody has died, and then I'll fix it, bring back to life. And she went on a journey. Basically, that's the beginning of her journey. She went on a journey and went from house to house and said, have you got a mustard seed? Yes. But has nobody died here? And they say, no, no, uncle, somebody died last week. Or grandmother died last year. And she went from house to house to house to house to house to house. She's on a journey She's, he's skillfully supporting her, the chitta, the heart-mind, to go through the journey, not just it's impermanent, but that she gets it. She gets it by going from house to house. It's tangible. She can feel the texture of it. She can have the encounter with it. A view is not just an intellectual thing because the views are... One way we could look at it, the views are almost um, uh, not living as such, but the view, the potential for those views is, is it's so sticky. The, on the level of the chitta, the heart-mind, it's sticky. We're stuck to those views. And we need the journey, the journey to keep coming close, to keep feeling in, to know the texture, to see what happens if I come close, if I move away, that things can start to move. And after time, it took time for her to keep making this encounter with the houses and realize that somebody had died in each one. That the chitta, the level of the chitta started to relax. And she came back to the Buddha and her view had shifted. She said, now I can bury my child. But she went on a journey first so some of our work is not just to apply a view where we've opened before like right it's impermanent don't be, don't be attached here I mustn't be attached actually we are and can we meet that and go through the journey with that feeling into it that's where the work is So we don't use a spiritual critic of um, attachment is bad, I shouldn't be attached, let go of attachment. Yes, we're orienting in the direction of the release of all bondage, but on the way, some of it takes time. So, a couple of stories for you, just I think they're, they're good ways of illustrating you. This is a very fundamental one for practice. One day, Isa saw some people sitting miserably on a wall by the roadside. He asked, what is your affliction? They said, we have become like this through our fear of hell. He went on his way and saw a number of people grouped disconsolately in various postures by the wayside. He said, and what is your affliction? They said, desire for paradise has made us like this. He went on his way until he came to a third group of people. They looked like people who had endured much, but their faces shone with joy. He asked them, what has made you like this? They answered, the spirit of truth. We have seen reality, and it has made us oblivious to lesser goals. the lesser goal here, both the fear of the difficult, the fear of hell, and the desire for paradise. Right? Because desire for paradise keeps us in the samsara of hoping and hoping and hoping. And that view conditions us to try and then compare our experience and we get tight and miserable. but dropping those views into the view of attending to what is true here and now. So the three wise views that the Buddha pointed to, three of of the wise views, there are a number, is to see that which is impermanent as impermanent, to really get it, not just in your head. To see that which is suffering as suffering in terms of unsatisfactoriness. We keep hoping we'll find the experience that's going to be satisfactory. But it can't deliver on that level of home. It can't deliver because any experience is subject to the same change. Right? So to really know the unsatisfactoriness doesn't mean some experiences aren't beautiful and uplifting and lovely and wholesome and beneficial. They are, and they are part of the path. But in terms of trying to make home, and the third one, to see that which is not self as not self, we tend to take very personally the experiences that arise. So, two stories, and then we'll close. Yeah, maybe this one first. How the view conditions the journey. It seems that once there was a woman from heaven walking on the face of the earth she was walking along when she came across a yogi standing by the roadside the yogi had meditated for 30 years with such austerity that birds had built a nest in his hair and his right arm was encased in a beehive right practice austerity practices and there are such practices in the indian tradition of great austerity where people will undertake a incredible practices for a very long time like having the arm raised so his right arm was encased in a beehive had been there so long the yogi sensed the presence of the woman from heaven and he came out of his meditation and he said oh woman from heaven please inquire for me how long before my liberation from this veil of tears the woman from heaven agreed to do this. And the yogi went back to his meditation. The woman walked on and found a young man dancing under a banyan tree. She inquired of the young man, Tell me, sir, what are you dancing for? I am dancing for my liberation, the young man replied. When you return to heaven, could you please ask how long before my liberation? The woman from heaven agreed to do this. Some years later, the woman from heaven returned to the face of the earth, and she went to discharge her duties. First, she went to the old yogi, and she said, "I That's the guy with the uh, arm. I have inquired in heaven, and you will be liberated in seven incarnations. The old yogi, with the bird's nest in his hair and the beehive still on his arm, he moaned loudly, and he said, Oh, so long! How can I endure for seven more incarnations? The woman from heaven said, This is the voice from heaven. And then she walked on. Next she came across the young man, and he was still dancing under the banyan tree. The dancing man spotted the woman, and without losing a step, he asked, How long? The woman from heaven said, I have inquired of heaven, and you will be liberated in as many incarnations as this banyan tree has leaves. Have you ever seen a banyan tree? they got a lot of leaves. right? So it's going to take as many incarnations as those leaves. And the young man yelped with joy and said, What, so soon? At that instant, a voice was heard from heaven saying, Young man, your liberation is this instant. The view of time is another view, and I'm not going to go into that now. It's another view that can keep us locked in a very rigid sense of cause and effect. There is cause and effect. This was one of the right views that the Buddha spoke about. There is cause and there is effect. But if we're holding on to what the view of what that looks like is, we may be limiting ourselves. So finally, um, when the Buddha was pointing to the awakened mind, he's actually pointing to quite a paradigm shift of view it's not a view that our mind can get its head around. It's the whole point, really. Anything we can get our head around is inevitably limited, actually, by the concepts of what our head is getting themselves around. He's pointing to a paradigm shift out of the view of anything that our mind can conceive. Right? And yet it can be known. And this story is not a story of awakening. There'll be more about awakening over the days. But this is a story of, the, of a shift in view where it's not the view that we're looking for. It's a story of a Taoist master so the story of a Taoist master living alone in his small hut in the woods and stories circulated into the, in the nearby town as to this man's unusual behavior. So it's in China. So a Confucian delegation was sent out to go and check him out to see if he was in order. As they came to knock on the door, the leader of the delegation saw through the window that the Taoist master was sitting alone cross-legged, on the floor, with no pants on. Horrified, he didn't wait to knock. He barged in and he exclaimed, What's going on here? This is a disgrace. What I want to know is, what are you doing, sitting in this hut with no pants on? The Taoist master looked up serenely, and he replied, Who says that this is so? In fact, from where I'm sitting, the whole world is my hut. This hut is my pants. And what I want to know is what are you doing in my pants? (laughs) So let's sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit